Birdnote presents. I've seen them on TV documentaries and obviously on my age used to see them on the front of all the book covers, but I've never actually seen them on the cliff face, you know, up close before. And uh, yeah, the, the, and I've just seen one, I, I was actually able to recognise one taking off from the sea because its its wings were going so rapidly, just flapping against the sea surface, and it was small and dark, and I, I guessed it must be a puffin. This is Steve Wallace, who's birdwatching at Bempton Cliffs in the north of England. I'm Ari Daniel, and this is Threatened. Today, we have a story about humans and puffins, how they interact and interweave, and how this complex relationship is a double-edged sword. And here's the question we're after. How does the puffin's cuteness and iconic status affect their place in our shared ecosystem? Our story today comes to us from producer Paul Drury-Brady, who's here with me now. Hey there, Paul. You're reporting this story from Bempton Cliffs. Now, I spent some time near the North Sea when I was studying in Scotland a number of years back. But where are the Bempton Cliffs exactly? On the Yorkshire coast, Harry, which is on the east side of the UK, the closest big city you probably know is Leeds. And it's close to Scarborough, which everyone seems to know from that folk song, The Scarborough Fair. Oh boy, Paul, I'm afraid I don't have the deepest knowledge of pop culture. I, it's really not ringing any bells. Maybe you could just sing it for me? <laughs> That's not a good idea. All you really need to know is that the song is about fishermen and traders and herring girls. And it's really old, a traditional folk song dating back to the Middle Ages. But in some ways, it's still relevant today. The Scarborough Fair followed the herring migration down from Scotland through the northeast coast of England... The herring were food for people, and of course, seabirds too. It makes me think about the links between people and their local environment today. Paul, what else can you tell me about the region? Can you paint me a picture? Yeah, the region looks out east over the choppy, wild waters of the North Sea, out towards Denmark and Germany, in fact. The towering chalk cliffs here are transformed into a true seabird city every year, with a visit of about half a million seabirds. Just 1% of these birds are puffins, but for many people, just like me, these charismatic little creatures are spark birds. This spark bird term means a bird that ignites a whole new passion for birding more generally. So why now? How did the puffin become your personal spark bird? It was partly leaving London, moving back up north and settling here on the Yorkshire coast. But almost as soon as we moved here, the pandemic happened. I was looking for things to do outside, close to home and a random puffin post on my Facebook inspired me to learn more. So, wanting to see a puffin is what brought me to where I am today, Bempton Cliffs. Like so many people, the first time I see a puffin, I just can't stop smiling. There's no two ways about it. They're funny, cheeky, and there just seems to be that strange kind of connection. I'm here now in May because the early summer months in England are peak puffin peeping. I think it is the charisma that they bring. They are, I mean, I I hate using the word cute, but I think that is exactly what it is. This is David Craven from the Yorkshire Wildlife Trust. They they have all the things that we respond to as humans in making an animal cute, in that, you know, they're quite small, they're sort of quite charismatic, they've got that sort of bright, colourful bill. His team is organising a massive puffin festival this summer, working with artists, filmmakers and people who feel inspired by puffins. In fact... The puffin has always inspired creative people. 
You've got artists here like Robert Fuller, who sells puffin paintings for almost £10,000, and puffin storytellers such as Ellie Jackson, who recently wrote a children's book called Marley's Tangled Tale, a gentle, true story about a puffin who gets more than she bargained for when hunting for food. So they get these nicknames like Clowns of the Sea, Parrots of the Sea. That sort of short, fat, dumpy little shape is the sort of thing that we think of as being quite comical. Um, they're not the best birds in the air to watch. They're not particularly good flyers. They tend to sort of propel themselves at a cliff and off a cliff, and that's about as far as they get. Most of the time, they'll be sitting on the surface of the water, on the oceans, on the seas, in the North Sea, and fishing. But when they get under the water, that sort of awkward-looking body in the air becomes really incredibly efficient. But I think it's, it's, it is their visual appearance that really endears them to people. These special birds have their own manners and truly unique way of doing things. And it's a way of doing things that is somehow intertwined with our human lives. We mirror each other in so many ways, not least caring for how we look. Did you know a puffin's beak changes colour during the year, just like our wardrobe changes? In winter, the beak is a dull grey colour, but in spring it blooms with an outrageous orange. It's thought that the bright colour helps puffins assess potential mates. And it's their mating ritual that perhaps makes them so magnetic to people. They're one of the most monogamous creatures in the animal kingdom. And couples usually go back to the same place to nest year after year. And before they nest, they perform this adorable little ceremony where they rub their beaks together. This beak rubbing is an affirmation of the puffing couple's true bond with each other. And they have really interesting little rituals that they do when they meet back up. So in May, if you're in the right place and you can see them meeting each other, when they first connect back to each other, they find each other by calling, by making their sort of little, it's a little bit like a sort of mooing sound that a puffin makes. They recognize each other's call, they go and find each other, and then they actually clack their beaks together, sn knocking them side to side against each other as a little greeting when they first meet. And they sort of push their little heads together. So it's a really, a really affectionate looking gesture that they do. And it's something that you will always see. The best place to see puffins in mainland England is right here, Benton Cliffs. It's home to one of the largest mainland colonies of puffins in the country. There are around 3,000 in total. You walk up to the cliffs and you kind of look out and you're like, oh, wow. Danielle Jackson, the visitor experience manager. She joins me on a deck outside, binoculars in hand. There's so many birds. I've no idea how you'd ever count them all. It's not often that you see this much wildlife there just straight in front of your eyes. Danielle's eyes light up as she describes a puffin's life cycle. On average a puffin lives for about 20 years. The oldest recorded puffin was 42 years old and that was found in Norway. Normally they start breeding at around seven or eight years um, and they are they pair for life so they are are quite cute in that respect. Uh, most of the seabirds actually are the same, they mate for life. Um, and they normally spend time out at sea. So actually being on land and coming and nesting is not their preferred habitat. So most of the time they're at sea, they're diving for fish. Normally they eat sand eels and sprats, which are found quite deep down, um, particularly sand eels. Danielle explained that a fully grown puffin in England grows to be around a foot tall and weighs little less than a pound. That's a similar weight to a regular can of cola. The tourists I talked to at Bempton Cliffs were surprised at just how small this bird is. But 
Does this pocket size help them to be more recognisable or maybe even better loved? Dave O'Hara is a site manager at Benton Cliffs. I remember speaking to a couple who were saying how they've been to the Serengeti, but they, you know, thought the seabird experience here was on a par, you know, with the Serengeti experience of wildlife in Africa, which is quite a compliment, you know. After hearing this, I really wanted to get a feel from visitors about why the puffin is just so special. I wanted to know why the puffin could be understood as a spark bird and how did it unlock this new love for bird life? And what does this mean for conservation efforts? Speaking to one man out on the cliffs, he felt inspired by the birds to come here after some personal struggles. I'm retired now, I'm a widower, yeah. and uh, I'm just trying different things. I have leukemia as well, so I'm doing, I'm feeling every day. I, I just love seabirds, I love the sea. Steve Wallace, who we heard at the beginning of this episode, is from Hull in East Yorkshire and is new to bird watching. The cliffs and their birds here are helping him to cope with loss and illness. If I'm ever feeling low at home, because I lost my wife three years ago, and, and uh, before that I found out I have uh, leukemia, which is... Uh, incurable although it's treatable um, so I do get down there sometimes but if I get a down day I come to the coast the sound of the seabirds and the, you know the sound of the sea crashing I love I love rough seas as well I love watching the rough seas and uh, it, it lifts my spirits you know it, it makes you feel like it's yeah it's still worth hanging in there. Of course Steve wasn't the only person I met on the Yorkshire coast who has fallen in love with puffins. When I was a, a girl guide I did a um from a badge, I did a thing about birds and I got this thing about the puffin and I'd never actually seen one. And I think just from drawing its picture and colouring its bill in, I always wanted to see a puffin. I actually saw my first puffin in Iceland, but okay. I have seen them here and I've seen them on the Farne Islands. You know, dream come true from childhood. Liz Burbeck from Cumbria in the northwest of England sharing her story there. In fact, everyone I spoke to had something to say about the magical puffin. Philippa Garland from Pickering in Yorkshire spends hours gazing at their colours and charisma. They're just so comical and they're colourful, you know, they're quite exotic. That beak is not like anything else, as far as I know, that we have visiting the UK. And uh, they're just, they're rather, they're just so sweet and, um, yeah, they're quite adorable. Coming up, we learn more about what spark birds mean for conservation and that puffins aren't just cartoon characters. The threats they face are very real. Join BirdNote on Wednesday, March 27th for a captivating conversation about the power of photography. A panel of esteemed photographers will share their experiences breathtaking captures, and insights into how stunning imagery can inspire action for birds. Plus, stick around to hear the winners of BirdNote's 19th birthday photo contest. Register for free at birdnote.org. Paul, many bird watchers have a spark bird, that first one that really captured their imagination. It seems like the puffin is that kind of spark bird to a lot of people. So, do you have a sense as to why that might be? I think it's the colours, really. The way puffins somehow look different to other birds. It's a strange thing to say, but there's almost this relatability there. But do all those cute little characteristics, the way they look, their mating habits, mean we somehow forget the birdness of puffins? Can they become almost too cute? It is really an iconic bird. From meeting people at Benton Cliffs, it's almost as if 
The idea is so clear before, but seeing the bird firsthand really helps to change perceptions. Yeah, it's like when you see the puffins, they convert from just an idea in your head to a kind of reality on the ground or or in the sea. Um, and it kind of reminds me of the climate conversation we're having. I think you're right, Ari. In a lot of ways, it goes from being an abstract to something very real that perhaps changes the way you think. I spoke to Danielle again about the power of puffins. Does their accessibility and spark bird status somehow help us to make more sense of our changing environment? I do. I think people often... So we have a lot of visitors that come here with the, I just want to see a puffin, that's all I want to see. But then, so they focus, and once they've seen that puffin, they then sort of like all the blinkers come off and then they see everything else. They start seeing the gannets soaring past. They start notice the kittiwakes gathering mud. They see like the inside of a razorbill's mouth, which is a bright yellow colour. They see all the guillemots in a line. They see the barn owl, which has been out today, like over the fields and you might see a vole run backwards and forwards they notice all the tree sparrows around the visitor center so they come with the idea of puffins and then it really opens up to what they can experience and what they can see so yeah i would say puffins there are a few sort of gateway birds if you like or gateway wildlife and puffins are definitely one of those do people really know this bird beyond the iconography became clear that coming to this wild and windy part of Yorkshire really connected people with birds, and the puffin in particular. It shifted from an icon to a really firm idea and became tangible. I spoke to David Craven again. Yeah, I, th I think what's really interesting is that we've seen studies that show that the puffin is one of the most recognisable birds. If you show a member of the general public 20 pictures of 20 different birds, the puffin is one of the ones that they will all recognise, but they don't know that they're here in the UK. They think that they're a tropical bird. And actually, 90% of the world's puffins all breed in Europe. In fact, 60% of them breed in Iceland. Um, so they're not tropical at all. They like that cold sort of uh, Atlantic setting. And so I think that when you get something that people realize that they love already, even if they've never actually seen one in the flesh, and you say, well, you can come and see that here in Yorkshire, it's a great excuse to get them there. This is powerful stuff. But how could this power be harnessed to make change happen? The puffin here is the Atlantic puffin which is sadly classified as vulnerable to extinction. And then we can go from, well, you love the puffin, and actually the puffin is a really threatened species, especially here in the UK, and here's what you can do to actually help us out, to help ensure that these puffins survive, thrive, and are here for generations to come. The Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, better known here as the RSPB, is the UK's leading bird charity, and they have their puffin on their red list, which means it is globally threatened and has had a severe population decline in the UK and it is really sensitive to adverse changes in the environment. Because as I learned, its breeding population is concentrated on such a small number of sites. The biggest threat that faces the puffins in Yorkshire is undoubtedly climate change. The reason that's such a big threat in Yorkshire is the reason the puffins come to this particular location is that just offshore, we have an upwelling of cold water. And that cold water brings with it nutrients which are carried on circulatory currents through the ocean. Those nutrients welling up feeds the small fish, particularly sand eels, that the puffins are dependent on. Sand eels are the primary food for the puffins here. These sand eels are small, eel-like fish, which grow up to about a foot long and can often be found in vast shoals in Yorkshire seas. But 
Ecologists know that warming waters affect the populations of sand eels very quickly. Now, on a global scale, as the climate warms, what that does to those oceanic circulatory currents is it slows them up. And when it slows them up, that means that you don't get the same level of nutrients being carried through the oceans, up through the Atlantic. With puffins, their true fragility is inescapable. Because of their low reproductive rate, puffin populations can be really slow to recover from any changes to their habitat, predator attacks, or declines in their food. So what may feel like this big, huge global scale problem has an incredibly locally manifested issue right here in Yorkshire because it takes away that food source. And because puffins are so site-specific, because they come back to that same place, if that food isn't there, if the sand eels are driven further north, or if the sand eels stay further south or go further out to sea, any of those changes, those little changes, actually dramatically impact on the puffins. Although puffins are on the RSPB's red list, the population at Benton Cliffs is currently thought to be stable. But, and it's a big but, it's extraordinarily hard to count them because puffins love to hide in little cracks and holes around the cliffs. David explained things could change very quickly. At the moment, touch wood and hopefully, what we're, we're seeing are still a relatively stable population in Yorkshire of the puffins and the other seabirds that we have here on the cliffs. So hopefully, at the moment, that's okay. Um, there's still enough food. They're still managing to come back and breed. But it wouldn't take much to tip them over the edge. And it will be when it tips, it's not one of these things will be a gradual decline. It will be a fairly catastrophic decline because the food will go very quickly and then the birds will effectively starve. There's something profound that plays the tourists encounter the puffins here. When the puffin goes from an idea to something tangible, the threats to their food, their habitat and their very survival become so much more real too. So one of those things is when we think about climate change, there's a tendency for us to think that all the little things that we're, in, we're encouraged to do can't possibly help. That's just not true. All those little things do mount up. So all the little things about reducing our, our own energy use, trying to just live that slightly bit more sustainable way, all of that does help to this idea of trying to keep climate change in check so that we don't end up with this kind of catastrophic collapse of colonies of puffins. I think by seeing these birds in their natural habitat, they become less of a painting, less of a character or cartoon, and more of a living creature who needs and deserves the right conditions to survive. The other thing that is a threat to puffins is things like litter, particularly plastics, because the microplastics and the macroplastics that get into the systems, into the ocean, which come down through our river systems. So somebody flushes something in Yorkshire in the west of the county, it will end up at the coast coming out through the rivers. And these things can actually end up in nests where they can tangle and choke the birds. They will potentially end up floating out at sea where they're picked up by mistake as food. And then they're fed to the birds and the birds can choke to death or the birds can just starve because they're not actually getting nutritious food. They're just getting plastic. And we also see things like birds getting tangled up in waste. Um, there's a photo I saw recently of... Um, a bird related to a puffin out at sea off the Flamborough coast and it had been caught in the string from a balloon that somebody had released. So things like avoiding any of these things that put this sort of litter into the system, that's a, a great thing that people can do. And you may not think that 
somewhere, you know, 100 miles inland, that what you do is going to have that sort of impact at the coast on birds like puffins, but it really will. But there are grounds to be cheerful. Dave O'Hara says he's optimistic that people visiting Benson Cliffs for the first time often feel really inspired to improve things for puffins and our environment too. People can can help to conserve puffins and other seabirds by firstly just taking an active interest in, in the issues that are affecting them and, and uh, you know, maybe adding their name to a petition or to show their support for, for seabirds. There's very positive initiatives for us to manage the seas better for nature over, over the coming years. Uh, but politicians need to know that the public care about these issues and they, politicians then care if the public care. There's something really special about your sparkbird. That's why puffins have such a unique power. They're a sparkbird for so many people, but I found out they don't just spark interest in bird life. They spark interest in the seas, our cliffs, and our shared environment, and how this is all changing. Perhaps puffins are going from cute to catalyst, and inspiring people discovering bird life and nature for the first time to think deeply about the decisions they make day to day. And then how can we work together to make our local environments better? These environments are of course interconnected, but if this lockdown love affair with puffins has taught us anything, so make a difference at home first and at your local reserve. While the cuteness of puffins in England may help save them, there's another bird half a world away that's suffering perhaps in part because it's not seen as terribly attractive. I know a lot of times they're not seen as um, being a beautiful animal, but they actually are, and they're actually quite clean. They do bath every day. Next week on Threatened, we're heading to Zimbabwe to learn about vultures. This episode was produced by Paul Drury Brady, Nick Granville Fall, and me, Ari Daniel, and edited by Caitlin Pierce of the Rough Cut Collective. Audio mix by Rob Byers, Johnny Vince Evans, and Michael Rayfield of Final Final V2. Our theme song and original music were composed by Ian Koss, with additional music by Blue Dot Sessions. Threatened is a production of Bird Note and overseen by content director Allison Wilson, with production assistance from Sam Johnson. You can find our show notes with additional resources, BirdNote's other podcasts, and much more at birdnote.org. Thanks for listening. See you next time.